Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, after the raid on former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home, we'll look at the fallout from the action that is without precedent in our nation's history. It erodes confidence in what is a bedrock of our Constitution. And President Biden signs legislation that will more than double the number of IRS agents in the nation. They are weaponizing to go after people who they disagree with politically. Boston Children's Hospital comes under fire for their promotional efforts in their program for, I'm using their language, gender-affirming treatments. Christians are opposed to this kind of so-called surgical procedures regardless of age. And the CDC has come under scrutiny for the past two and a half years of pandemic oversight. They were so bad at their very limited scope of work. All this and more. I'm Georgine Rice. I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from Portland in my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with the fallout from the August 8th raid on former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. Over the course of the past week, the pressure has been on for the Department of Justice to release the affidavit supporting the search warrant of Donald Trump's home. Raiding the home of a former president has never been done before. While in the course of our nation's nearly 250-year history, we have had a number of presidents who found themselves embroiled in scandal and subjected to legal inquiry. We've never seen the home of a former president raided. Tim Gados, my colleague here in the Pacific Northwest, on 820 AM, The Word in Seattle, turned to Frank Gaffney of the Center for Security Policy. Was it hundreds, thousands of documents? Was it, was it a few documents? I mean, they, they sent uh, 30 agents um, to, to the House to, to, to find these documents. I mean, that, that's a lot of agents if it's just you're trying to find a, a few boxes or a few pieces of paper. Yeah, well, clearly, this was more of a mission to exploit whatever they came across. And between the numbers of uh, agents that were involved and the length of time uh, that they took, uh, the fact that uh, Donald Trump's attorneys were not permitted to observe, uh, they told the Secret Service, I think, to turn off the surveillance cameras to provide security inside the complex. I'm getting mixed reports as to whether that request was complied with or not. Uh, if they, if it were not, then, you know, we may actually in due course learn more about what actually went on here and how many documents and where they all went and so on. But uh, as, as best I can tell from the reports that we've had to this point, they went everywhere. They looked through everything and we don't know what they took. And uh, I, I personally believe this smacks of a kind of, well, it's called overreach, but I, I don't think that does justice to it. I really do believe that it is a kind of police state operation that raises real questions about the condition of our republic and, and its future prospects if it's allowed to persist. Merrick Garland, he basically alluded and said, hey, we, we were trying to keep this on the down low, but, you know, because Trump came out and mentioned it, you know, now we need to come back and, and 
speak as well. But I was just kind of, I mean, I kind of chuckled at that. I'm like, okay, so you're going to do something for the very first time in the history of this country, you know, sending 30 FBI agents to a former president's house. You think you're going to keep that on the down low? <laughs> yeah. Especially when the president in question, Donald J. Trump, I mean, please, that, that doesn't pass the giggle test. Yeah. And more to the point, if they were trying to keep it on the down low, presumably it was because they were hoping that they'd get away with it. And what Trump in his inimitable fashion did was called them out, and now they have to come forward and own what they've done and justify it. I can't imagine that Merrick Garland did this without consulting with the White House. Mm. In fact, I, I would be willing to bet dollars to donuts that the orders came from the White House to do it. But one way or the other, this, I think, will out. And the more we learn about what happened and the grounds on which it was done and what was seized in the process, I think the more the public is going to be outraged, uh, not you know, satisfied that it was all on the up and up, not on the down low. One of the things I wanted to get your thoughts on, Frank, one of the comments uh, Merrick Garland in his press conference – he talked about the rule of law as the bedrock principle of our democracy in that this has to be handed out evenly without fear or favor. Did, I'm curious if you saw that and what your response to that was. Uh, I confess I didn't see it. I've been hearing reports about it. And that one, uh, unfortunately, is emblematic of what the Biden administration is doing across the board. It says one thing and it does the other. Uh, it, it looked no further than the treatment of Hunter Biden and the treatment of Donald Trump, or for that matter, Peter Navarro or Steve Bannon or many others who are deemed to be political enemies of this administration. There's no equal justice under law. I want to get into Hillary Clinton, but I mean, the truth of the matter is the American people are now being treated to a sort of uh, unequal and unfair use of the Department of Justice, um, the prosecutorial powers it has, the investigative powers of the FBI. Uh, for that matter, uh, it, it appears uh, some willing to play ball in the judicial branch. And you put it all together, and it erodes confidence in what is a bedrock of our Constitution and the republic that, you know, it, it, uh, it, it empowers, uh, namely the rule of law. And I don't care how many times. Merrick Garland or Christopher Ray or you know uh, uh, Joe Biden for that matter uh, pay lip service to this principle of equal justice under law. They are not practicing it, and I think the American people uh, are are going to lose um, confidence if there is any left in the people who are effectively abusing. 
their powers and abusing the Constitution in the process. Many Americans are feeling a sense of unease as they see what's unfolding here. That sense has not been helped by the fact that the president this week signed the enormous $739 billion Inflation Reduction Act. The bill has nothing to do with inflation except perhaps making it worse. But it will add nearly $80 billion to the Internal Revenue Service and 87,000 new agents. Don Crow turned to economist Stephen Moore. They spoke on WAVA in the nation's capital. And is it not uh, the ultimate irony, Stephen, that on the one hand, we're defunding our police across the country. Right. But uh, in the, as I understand it, these 87 new IRS agents must be willing to, if they apply for the jobs, carry a firearm and, of course, learn how to use it. And if necessary, be willing to use it uh, if that's necessary to uh, kind of get the money out of our back pockets. Am I right? Yeah, well, let me just clarify something. Not all 87,000 would have to have firearms, but right. uh, the point we were making in our study was that the the IRS has over $10 million of ammo and firearms and even military equipment uh, in their arsenal. Why? Why, Don? Why does the IRS need guns? Uh, you know, I, I can't think of a reason why an IRS agent would need a gun. Uh, and so this is uh, this is like giving a crossing agent, a crossing guard at a, at a school a gun. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. And people are infuriated by this. I can't tell you, especially after what happened with the uh, illegal uh, raid on Mar-a-Lago by the FBI. Uh, people, especially conservatives, are quite correctly worried that what is happening with the Biden administration is they are literally weaponizing Federal branches of government, including the State Department, including the FBI, including the Department of Justice, and now the IRS, to go after people who they disagree with politically. And so it's people like me and people like you that have conservative voices that are going to be—who do you think is going to get audited? Yeah. <laughs> think oh, Bill yeah. Gates is going to get audited? Do you think uh, Zuckerberg is going to get audited? Do you think uh, Warren Buffett's going to get audited or General Electric or Google? No. They're going to go after the little guy. Number one. And number two, anybody who dares disagree with their policies, they are going to go after those people and harass them. Now, what I just described, Dan, if I sound angry, I am, because that's what, you know, uh, banana republics do. It, It is totally contrary to our system of justice in this country. Talk about the impact of this. Now, they justify, of course, on the one hand, uh, you are the economist who can tell us the uh, incredible impact of their own economic policies that they've been setting in place that are really making a bad situation much worse. And then yep. on top of that, they want to help pay for it by pulling more money out of our pockets through these 87,000 new agents. Is that their rationale? Well, they just want more and more power. Yeah. You know, when you come down, right down to it, what are they doing? They're increasing the size of government so they have more power over people's lives. They're massively increasing the spending. By, did you know they've now spent, since Biden came into office, above the normal budget, $4 trillion? Wow. Did you know that, Don? $4 no. trillion. I didn't pay $4 billion, folks. Four comma zero 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 comma zero 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 comma zero 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 comma zero zero zero. Point zero zero. I mean, these these amounts that Biden is spending, deluging and flooding the economy with cheap dollars. Why is anybody surprised we have record high inflation? 
Talk about what you see the outcome of this being in terms of uh, the upcoming November elections, midterms, but also 2024. What are your thoughts as to where this may well find the nation headed? I am so worried about our country. I mean, what Biden has done, how he has ruined the Trump economy in 18 months is just so shattering to me. And as you know, I was a major player in the Trump economic policy making and and we cut the taxes we reduced regulation we got the poverty rate down to the lowest level ever we got had record amounts of employment in this country uh you know we just saw the amazing advances and we got inflation was one and a half percent now it's nine percent under biden and in in what 20 months how do you do that coming up the boston children's hospital comes under scrutiny christians are opposed to this kind of so-called surgery and to the very notion of gender-affirming surgical procedures regardless of age. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Boston Children's Hospital has long been one of the most reputable and highly ranked pediatric hospitals in the nation. Most recently, they created a series of promotional videos boasting of their work in using their language, gender-affirming care. Gender-affirming hysterectomy is very similar to most hysterectomies that occur. Hysterectomy itself is the removal of the uterus and the fallopian tubes, which are attached to the sides of the uterus. Some gender-affirming hysterectomies will also include the removal of the ovaries. Remember, this is a children's hospital. Here's Albert Moeller from his briefing podcast. The big issue we're going to look at today represents head-on collisions that are now appearing in the headlines. Head-on collision between reality, creation order, God's design, and the modern moral revolution. What's going on right now, which is a massive attempt on the part of our society at large to reject reality, God's authority, and for that matter, all common sense. Just lean into that last category for a moment. All common sense. See if you understand what I'm talking about when I turn first to Boston. Where in Boston, the venerable hospital, now known as Boston Children's Hospital, is becoming very well known for its gender-affirming procedures, which in a series of videos and by other means, it is now making very clear it is routinely carrying out for adolescents. Now, the controversy emerged in recent days because of headlines, largely in some conservative circles, indicating that Boston Children's Hospital was carrying out this kind of, quote, gender-affirming surgery. As we think about this, the conservative news sources have been talking about these procedures being carried out on children. PolitiFact and others came to the hospital's defense in order to say, no, that's not actually happening. It's absolutely dishonest to use the word children. We're talking about adolescents here. We're talking about teenagers. Now, remember, that's another symptom of our times. I'll simply encourage all of you to watch what happens when you're talking about someone, say, like a 17 or 18-year-old. You will notice that on the left, 
That person is not responsible enough to be entrusted with many things, including, by the way, the use of a firearm. But when it comes to the ability to demand surgery that would radically modify the body, that would end reproductive capacity, that would put actually many medical complications on the line and are frankly so radical they're difficult to discuss in this format, all of a sudden that person becomes a responsible adult able to make these decisions. And if they don't legally define the individual as an adult, then they define consent down, which is the very thing they're arguing the opposite of in other circles. Now, I think there are arguments to be made about all kinds of contexts in which age is taken into consideration. The first thing we need to say is that age in this case is simply the alarm to something more fundamentally wrong, which is to say Christians are opposed to this kind of so-called surgery and to the very notion of gender-affirming surgical procedures regardless of age. The problem is just exacerbated. It's made abundantly even more radically clear when you are talking about younger persons. Some of the news articles, by the way, are quite positive towards the hospital. For example, Alex Schimmel, reporting for the National Desk at CBS, tells us, quote, Boston Children's Hospital, a nationally renowned hospital ranked number one in the nation by U.S. News and World Report, was the first major pediatric hospital in the country dedicated to providing life-altering surgical procedures for gender dysphoric youth, end quote. Well, again, are we talking about children or not? Well, it all depends on the politics of the word. This is a children's hospital. Now, this news report, I just remind you, is offered as basically a positive piece about This particular hospital, Boston Children's Hospital, and the CBS report tells us, quote, among the gender-affirming surgeries offered at the hospital are gender-affirming hysterectomies, which involve the removal of the cervix, or the lower, narrower end of the uterus that forms a canal between the uterus and the, I'll just say, external genitalia, as well as the fallopian tubes. The next sentence, quote, hysterectomies, which are irreversible, are commonly used for cancer patients and a litany of other gynecological health problems. Now, one of the nation's leading hospitals wants to remove healthy cervixes and fallopian tubes, which would permanently prevent a patient from being able to bear children. According to at least one version of what the hospital put on its own website, the hospital said, quote, we pride ourselves in providing the answers you seek in simple language that children, teens and parents can understand from addressing common concerns. I'm not even going to say what follows there, but I am going to say once again. The hospital on its own website uses the word children. And in our society, we're talking about adolescents and teenagers as a latter stage of childhood. And even some of the people here who don't want to use the word child and say it's irresponsible to use the word child when talking about teenagers here and even early adolescents, the fact is they use the same language. Why? Because it's true and because it makes sense and in other contexts, It's unavoidable. And even in this one, it's unavoidably true. Dr. Moeller is clearly animated by this trend in the medical community to capitalize on the rise of transgender identity in today's youth. Simply put, we're hurting our children. And over the course of the last two and a half years, our children have also been disproportionately hurt by our efforts to address the COVID-19 pandemic. Unsurprisingly, we're now seeing pushback toward or rather against the CDC. Carol Markowitz of the New York Post joined Kevin McCullough, AM570, The Mission, in New York City. The CDC finally changed all of its guidance, Mm -hmm. uh, has removed all of the things that were told that we needed to do uh, in in the uh, era of COVID. 
But you're calling for uh, some actually uh, punitive steps towards the CDC for all that they got wrong. Uh, why? Well, it's funny because I'm calling for the CDC to be disbanded. But a lot of the comments that I got on Twitter is I'm being too soft on them, that they all should go to prison. <laughs> so maybe my way is the happy medium here. But it wasn't just the errors. It wasn't just the slowness. It wasn't just, you know, the absolute sticking their head in the sand and not paying attention to what was happening in the real world in regards to COVID. There was actually a lot of corruption also at the CDC. And one of the examples that I bring up all the time is in winter of 2021, they let Randy Weingarten, head of a teacher's union, write opening schools policy for them. They literally, under the direction of the White House, this is all out in the open, they allowed her to say that a certain number of steps needed to be taken in order for schools to open. Now, of course, schools were open already in so many places across the country. Only school districts that were under her thumb were not open. So they literally ceded policy to a special interest group. I mean, I, I don't think that they should be able to function any longer just based on that. Forget about everything else that they got wrong. So the whole thing is, you know, we kept hearing follow the science, follow the science. Well, some of us were following the actual science and not the CDC, which was either wrong or late or just mistaken. They, there were so many moments where the CDC gave guidance that made no sense. I mean, another example that I point to in this column, pretty famous at the time, but Rochelle Walensky on a Friday afternoon said, this is when the vaccine was first out, said pregnant people should get the vaccine. And then on Monday, the CDC came out and sort of reversed themselves. But what they ended up saying was pregnant people could get the vaccine, which is like a completely different thing. So any woman that got the vaccine over the weekend is like, wait, did, was I supposed to do this or not? And any health agency playing these kinds of semantics, not to mention the fact that if they can't say it's a pregnant woman, they shouldn't be a health agency at all. Yeah, right. Um, all of this is just they were so bad at their very limited scope of work. And I, I think that it needs to be disbanded. We need to start over again. This was a disaster. This is literally their only job is to, to, to handle pandemics like this because the rest of the time, as I also mentioned in the column, they're telling us to eat well-done burgers and stay away from sushi. And we don't listen to them. But this became policy. Their word became law. And I really think we have to never do that again. And step one is to disband the CDC and start over again. Yeah, no, I think that you're absolutely right. Coming up, the church in the wake of the pandemic. I think the awakening is taking place about the reality of our circumstances is going to help us navigate a better future. Pastor Alan Jackson, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. This afternoon, we're announcing new guidelines for every American to follow over the next 15 days. Put into practice the 15 days to slow the spread. Isn't this going to be longer than 15 days? Dr. Anthony Fauci says we might be wearing masks into next year. It's inconvenient to go through this, but this is going to be the answer to our problems. We can't live like this. People were not meant to live like this. A year and a half ago, we started with 15 days to slow the spread, and now it's gone to get jabbed or lose your job. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. 
Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. 15 days to slow the spread. That's what came out of President Trump's press conference on March the 16th, 2020. Looking back, it was that week that ushered us into an extraordinary period of history, a history that very much included the CDC and all of our public health authorities. But it went far beyond that. Pastor Alan Jackson has a very helpful perspective on all of this. He's the voice you hear on many of the stations that carry the Christian outlook. He's also the author of a new book titled Big Trouble Ahead, a real plan for flourishing in a time of fear and deception. He was a guest on my program. You state in the book, again, Big Trouble Ahead, that the 2020 Easter service at your church was really something of a wake-up call. Can you describe that service uh, and how it communicated something to you that hadn't dawned on you up to that point? I, I can. It was it was really a shocking day for me. I had always rather said, said rather pridefully that we would have church no matter what happened. You know, we live in Tennessee, and if it snows in Kentucky, we close our schools here in Tennessee. So, you know, I would talk about inclement weather and say, no matter what the weather is, we'll have church. But then when the pandemic, we heard about the virus from Wuhan, we were closed for six weeks. And that Easter Sunday, I was standing in an empty room. I still hadn't sorted out what to do with all that. So I wore my suit and tie and stood in an empty room and looked at a little red light at the back of the room, talking to people that were sitting at home on their sofa in their pajamas. And I realized I had been leading a rather presumptive life. And so I began to rethink my approach to what we did and to reevaluate the privilege of gathering with God's people. And and we really walked out of that season with a different attitude and a different plan for the future. But it began with changes in our own hearts. Well, it was a very sobering season for many of us. And in fact, you refer to COVID-19 as a tremor, a foreshock of the challenges ahead. What what can we gain in terms of our understanding of what's coming in light of what we've just been through? Well, I think to understand, you know, the first messaging we got was that if we would go home for two weeks and shelter in place, we could flatten the curve and go back to normal. So three weeks into this, we realized that the messaging we had was inadequate. That's unsettling and uncomfortable. But at that point, we realized we're going to have to begin to watch and look and think for ourselves. And the bigger picture to me was that this is about far more than a pandemic. You know, we're two and a half years later now, and lawlessness has increased. Violence has increased. Uh, Our borders are still open. We have so many challenges from supply chain issues to global challenges of unrest um, to rising fuel prices. I mean, the, the chaos and the confusion, the misinformation or the disinformation, the censorship, the propaganda, this is about far more than a virus, and we're navigating a new landscape. But I also believe that God is moving in some very, very unique ways, and there are opportunities that we didn't recognize three years ago. So we have to decide whether we're going to be frightened or angry because there's been a change in the world around us, or we can see the opportunities and imagine a better future. And I'm going to vote for a better future. Amen. You write about uh, and offer some examples of deception and misinformation that flooded society then and continues to do so right now. Uh, Do you think COVID um, increased misinformation or just exposed what was already going on? Yeah, I think probably a little bit of both. But more than anything, I think for me, at least, I was awakened to what was happening. Maybe we were distracted by our pursuit of comfort and convenience. And as long as we were comfortable and had the things that we wanted, 
We just didn't look at the inconvenient, uncomfortable things. But the truth is, disinformation has been growing for a long time. Uh, I, I think we're seeing censorship in unprecedented ways. Some of our new communications platforms have made that much simpler and easier. You know, I remember the days when the ACLU would defend the, the most heinous forms mm -hmm. of speech under the sense of that First Amendment. And they seem to have lost the momentum of doing that in the current season. But so some things I think are new, but in reality, much of what we're seeing in the public square today, I was hearing in the university settings decades ago. It's just made its way all the way down into our elementary schools now. And I think it's really good news. You can't get to a better outcome until you get an accurate diagnosis. And I think the awakening that's taking place about the reality of our circumstances is going to help us navigate a better future. Coming up. We have a place in the public square. And I think we abandoned it in the name of maybe tolerance or inclusivity. And I don't want to be less tolerant or less inclusive, but I certainly want a place at the table and a voice in the discussion. More with Pastor Alan Jackson when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. There's no question about it. These last few years have presented a number of significant challenges. Not one of us was untouched or unhindered. And yet, Pastor Alan Jackson sees a gift in what we've all walked through. Yes, a gift. Let's return for more of my conversation with Pastor Alan Jackson. One of the byproducts of the lockdown is that parents, perhaps for the first time, had an up-close and personal view of what their children were being taught or what they weren't being taught, and that was eye-opening. That was one area that um, the uh, the lockdown exposed, but I think it was an awakening in other areas as well. It was, and it's an area where I'm a bit embarrassed, to be honest. You know, I, I stepped out of some places with my biblical worldview because we were told that it wasn't appropriate for them to be there, whether it was our children's classrooms or some academic settings or corporate boardrooms. We were told that a Judeo-Christian worldview shouldn't be in, introduced into those places. And yet we find ourselves today where corporate boardrooms are very aggressively pushing a worldview issue to, I mean, to the point that they will relocate the all-star game for baseball or all sorts of corporate Boardrooms have opinions about social systems. Well, those are just worldview opinions. Well, at this point now, I'm embarrassed that I took my Christian worldview and stepped aside. We have every bit as much of a right to have a voice in those public places as any other worldview does. And I think the Christians are going to have to wake up a bit. We don't want to be angry. We certainly don't want to be belligerent and absolutely not violent. But we have a place in the public square. And I think we abandoned it in the name of maybe tolerance or inclusivity. And I don't want to be less tolerant or less inclusive, but I certainly want a place at the table and a voice in the discussion. Absolutely. I am so grateful for God's word. Can you talk a little bit about how we benefit as believers specifically from the Holy Spirit? 
Mm, I can. When Jesus was getting ready to leave, you know, he had recruited his disciples. He said, if you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And they did. They walked away. They completely reordered their lives to follow Jesus. And they got three years into that adventure, and he sat down with them one day, and he said, I'm leaving. And where I'm going, you can't come. And they just about lost their minds. I mean, this was not the nature of the agreement as they had understood it. It wasn't the future they wanted. They had gained a great deal of confidence and trust in Jesus. And now he said he was leaving. And then he looked at him and he said something that's almost impossible to understand. He said, it's better for you if I go away, because if I do, I'll send you another comforter. And he'll never leave you or forsake you. He'll guide you into all truth. And if that was true for Peter and James and John and the Marys and the rest of the crew that were with Jesus, I believe it's true for you and me that the Holy Spirit present with us is the fullest possible provision that God can make for our lives. And I I just think we have had so much. We've been able to secure our futures on our own and imagine that we can navigate the world around us. We haven't had to be that dependent upon the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And a part of the opportunity we have these days is to begin to say to him in a quiet, gentle way, you're welcome in my life. I want to learn to recognize your voice. I want to cooperate with your promptings. I will follow your lead. If we will do that, I think we will find a tremendous comfort in the midst of the confusion. Amen. How should Christians respond to the rising threat of immorality, which uh, threatens to overwhelm many, so they choose simply to disconnect altogether? If I'm unaware of what's happening, I won't be impacted by it, nor will I be called upon to do anything about it. Wow. Well, I think our assignment to be salt and light is unyielding, but sometimes we get confused about where that light needs to shine. I think it starts at our kitchen table. I think if we will bring our biblical perspective home and begin to talk about it with the people where we have influence closest to us, and then we'll have the courage to have that conversation with the people that we spend our discretionary time with, or perhaps at the ball fields and when we're with our children at the soccer games, that we'll find there are plenty of opportunities to discuss our biblical worldview. Um, It just takes courage. The hardest place in the world for me to be a Christ follower is at home. I can get on a plane and go to another country, and I'm a hero for Jesus. But living that faith out with my neighbors and the people that I'm doing life with is it takes determination and focus. But that's the place I think God will honor it and bring the change. We've got to bring our faith back to the kitchen table and to tell one another the truth and help one another forward. And I believe God will bring about the outcomes we need. Are there pagan religious practices that we've unwittingly allowed to sort of take root in our personal and family lives? Is that a challenge for us? Absolutely. We've sacrificed 60 million of our children. We've allowed family to be redefined. We've redefined marriage. We have trouble identifying gender. Um, All of those seem almost beyond imagination, but they're as real within the church as they are without. And we've got to come back and begin to practice the truth of the Word of God as we know it. It's not that complicated. It's just not always easy. And we're going to have to have the courage to say, God, God was the one that designed sex. He's not a prude. He gave us a context in which it will bring the very best to human beings. And outside of that context, it's destructive. And we're going to have to have the courage to trust him and begin to be obedient to him and stop acting as if he didn't mean what he said. The truth isn't really a mystery to us. It's just been inconvenient. And so now it's time for the church to come back in humility and repent and begin to practice the truth that we understand. Absolutely. 
you make the point that it's important in times of tribulation to know and to tell your Jesus story. Some of us are, quite frankly, a little bit ashamed to tell our story. We call it something else, but we're very reluctant to share it out of fear that we're going to be rejected or ridiculed or any number of things. Why is it important, especially for us, to tell our stories, which are ours, they they can't really be disputed by someone who hasn't had that same experience. Why is it so important for us to at least begin there to tell the story of our relationship, our walk with Jesus? Well, your observation is exactly correct. It's your story. And it's your reality. It's your truth. We hear your truth celebrated just about everywhere we listen these days. And as Christ followers, we need the courage to be willing to share what God has done in our life. We've had a, a mistaken either impression or goal that the church is not the Hall of Fame of Christianity. We don't gather in our churches on the weekends because we're perfect. In fact, quite the opposite is true. We're a triage unit. Mm-hmm. We come to church broken and wounded, and we limp in, and we stand together in community and invite the presence of God to begin the process of healing and restoration and deliverance. And everybody's welcome. People say to me, Pastor, I don't want to go to church. There's so many hypocrites. And I usually answer the same way. Well, we've got room for one more. Come on, we'll squeeze you in. (laughs) Because we all start in that broken condition. And there's no shame in acknowledging that. The, the, The weakness or the failure comes when we pretend that we don't need God's help. Coming up. One suggestion I would make would spend more time reading your Bible than you read watching the news. We continue with Alan Jackson. So stay with us. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. I will be still and know you are God. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. I agree with our guest, Alan Jackson. The gift of this period of history is that it has provided clarity, a set of external challenges that reveal where we are in our Christian faith. But I also recognize that there's an element of fear or anxiety as we look ahead. Let's return for a few more minutes of my conversation with Pastor Alan Jackson, talking about his new book, Big Trouble Ahead. Let me ask you what Bible passages you recommend for those who fear the coming tribulation. Well, I think people being frightened is normal. You know, in in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of a storm, it's unsettling. And we're certainly walking through a storm. One of my favorite habits these days is to take a chapter from the book of Proverbs that corresponds with the date. And then I choose a verse for that day, a promise out of that chapter that seems to bring me hope in the midst of the storm. It gives me something to think about on a daily basis other than the latest headlines. One suggestion I would make would spend more time reading your Bible than you read watching the news. You spend too much more time than that on the Internet chasing down your favorite conspiracy theory, and it starts to pollute your heart no matter which side of the equation you're on. Spend more time thinking about what God has told us he will do and he is doing than spending your time listening to what's going on. You can stay abreast of current events with a pretty minimal investment of time. And I'm not exactly sure which media outlet we trust anyway. I mean, one of the casualties in this season has been trust from the CDC to the FBI to the WHO to a whole host of alphabet organizations. We're not sure which message is trustworthy any longer. But God's word is still steadfast, and I believe we can trust him. You have a chapter titled Stand and Be Counted, that we need to be ready to stand. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like in the challenging season we find ourselves in and with big trouble ahead? 
Yes, I can talk about standing. You know, if you use if you don't use a muscle, it atrophies. If you break your arm and they put a cast on it, when they take that cast off in six weeks, your arm looks different. Well, the the, the contemporary church in our nation, we've had so much freedom and so much liberty. We we really haven't had to stand too much. So I think those muscles have atrophied. And when you start to use muscles you haven't used before, it's not a pleasant experience. You you get tired very quickly, and then you get sore, and they scream at you not to do that anymore. And I think we're enduring a little bit of that right now as a church. We haven't really had to stand up. We haven't had to be courageous. We haven't had to be particularly bold. We've learned how to retreat, and we've learned how to yield territory. And now we're having to walk back into the public schools and into the courtrooms and the classrooms and the places and say, our faith belongs here, too. And that's awkward. It's uncomfortable. It doesn't feel normal. It's not our habit. But I also believe we can do it in love, and we can do it with boldness. We can find a way to say we believe Jesus is Lord, that his message and his ministry is unique, and that he will bring good things to your life. Now, not everybody will cheer for us when we do that. But I believe we can strengthen those muscles, and we can begin to stand in a way that will bring God's blessings to our children and our grandchildren. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Outlook. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushan, Mike Cook, and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook.